Ryan Stanton here with a set front line and uh, once again here at MEMA 23 at the Michigan Emergency Medicine Assembly in Mackinac Island and uh, today joined by a good friend uh, that we've spent uh, days and evenings together all over this country as part of uh, ASAP related events and with Dr. Curtis Mays. Um, he's got enough letters after his name that he has to have a larger badge in all of his conferences. He's JD, MD, MBA, and FACEP, of course. Uh, but really, we, we uh, tap him because of not only his uh, pediatric emergency medicine skill set, but also the JD uh, for uh, some of the aspect of the medical legal aspect of things. And so we're going to hit on two different talks today, uh, both related from a medical legal standpoint. And that being first and foremost, little people, big lawsuits, and then some of, we're going to wrap up with the top five medical legal risks in emergency medicine. And uh, of course, you know, many times these legal aspects of things get everybody a little bit nervous, a little bit scared, uh, but uh, we'll uh, also give you some things and tips that you can do to help protect yourself uh, and to stay calm. Things do work out on occasion. Uh, but um, let's dive into it. Uh, Give everybody a little background, because I mean, they may, uh, you've been on with us before, but never uh, give us a little background, make sure everybody knows who you are. Yeah, sure. So my name is Curtis Mays. I am currently the chair of pediatric emergency medicine at St. Francis Children's Hospital in Tulsa, Oklahoma, one of our two children's hospitals in the state of Oklahoma. Um, by way of background, originally from New York. Uh, did my undergrad down in Washington, D.C., and then went out to the University of Illinois, where I did all of my graduate work in law and medicine and business. Uh, then did emergency medicine with the wonderful folks at Stony Brook Medical Center out on Long Island, and then out to fellowship at here in Michigan, which is how I uh, got involved in the summer assembly in the first place back when I was a fellow. So I did that at the University of Michigan, and uh, they've welcomed me home here as family ever since. And I just keep coming back because they always do it at this really neat place. Yeah, um, it, it is a fantastic place. And I think the last time we talked, you were transitioning into your chair, wasn't it? That's right. Uh, yeah, so the, I was, that was probably ASAP of 21, and uh, that December is when I took over there. When so. we were just getting back into our first one back together again. We were, we were first, we were first yeah. seeing each other face to face in real somewhat life. Face -to -face. Yeah. Oh, somewhat face to face. Somewhat, yeah. Mask to mask. Um, so let's talk a little, little people, big lawsuits. And I'm actually more impressed that you have more letters uh, on the front page here. Um, uh, you, you've added the rest there, but let's uh, talk about some of the um, these aspects of pediatrics and why we can get so much or potential risk with taking care of pediatrics. Yeah, so um, you know, first and foremost, lawyers love little people because little people make very sympathetic plaintiffs, mm -hmm. uh, and they have. Uh, in theory, long life expectancies and big expectations for their future, and so they can cost a lot of money. Um, so I think that that's, that's, that's just one thing in general as PEDS cases um, you know, are, are amenable to lawyers' dockets, I think. Um, the other part of that is the whole discoverability issue, and, and that is, uh, and just in terms of risk, um, pediatric patients' claims can last a really long time. And so even 
in some states beyond the child's 18th birthday plus the statute of limitations. And the statute of limitations is a little bit different depending on uh, the states that you're in. For instance, the statute of limitations in your state, Kentucky, I looked it up before we, we came online, is one year. And where I am in Oklahoma, it's two years. And in some states, it's three years. But then when you add in the whole pediatric component to it, um, some states will allow that that claim doesn't, doesn't doesn't start, the time doesn't start until the actual plaintiff or the child in that case is actually able to sue on their own behalf because that's when it's discoverable to them. Um, and so you just have to know what your state laws are in terms of that. And I've always heard that, you know, that the, one of the biggest fears, of course, with, um, with OBGYN, with their legal risk is the fact from birth to adulthood, you know, whatever it may be that could be potentially um, blamed or made responsible to the actual birthing process or anything of that nature, um, that does make it a little bit more difficult because we are dealing with that uh, larger uh, that larger window. And of course, as you mentioned in your top 10 specialties, OB is going to be number one. Let's, let's talk about those, those specialties that are going to be involved in. We are as emergency medicine uh, on that list and uh, you as pediatric emergency medicine are going to be on the list twice. Yeah, so uh, obstetrics is number one, and we, we've talked about that. There's definitely a, a lot of risk there. And then the, the general pediatric specialty is number two, and emergency medicine is number four there. So I do get, wearing both hats, I do get a little double-dinged there. But um, yeah, there is, there is, because of both of the components that, uh, that I just talked about, you know, just the, the whole pediatric plaintiff situation as well as the discoverability, it just it, it puts us higher on the list. But even with all of that, the reasoning for lawsuits is still going to be the same as we see in adults, those diagnostic errors. Uh, talk about with the age-related um, reasons for litigation that we may see based on age groups from the youngest to pushing the adulthood. Yeah, so I, I, my big point in kind of breaking this down by age is, is really in terms of medical legal risk, the big ones still tend to be um, diagnostic-related uh, issues as well as actual uh, medical treatment. As you get a little bit older, when you get to the 10 to 17-year-olds, you do notice that surgical treatment kind of creeps up a little bit, but that's because I think that the likelihood of maybe that older population when you start getting into traumatic risk actually has the opportunity to have more surgical exposure than some of the younger age groups. Um, but really still the big, the big one is diagnosis related and whether that be failure to diagnose or delay in diagnosis or making the wrong diagnosis, uh, those are the heavy hitters. Yeah, and, and amazing, interestingly, uh, just looking at the list, even in those, those youngest categories, the obstetric-related uh, management is, is only a very small minority of 3% in this case. Uh, but over time, um, you know, the results, you know, I think one of the things that comforts a lot of physicians, you know, especially in residency, you know, we had these uh, litigation story times um, almost every didactic week um, with ours, and we talk about a case, and, you know, so many times you're like, oh, I would never do that, but then once you get into practice, you know, there's, there's a lot of things you find that you're like, oh, crap, how many have I missed, because that, I absolutely should not have found that um, type of thing. So uh, how has the progression of pediatric lawsuits uh, and litigation changed 
over the last couple of decades with regard to what happens with them and outcomes? Yeah, so when you, when you take a look, there was a study in pediatrics in, in 2020 that takes a look at uh, most recent claim or suit data from the 80s to uh, 2015. And when you look at the cases, a lot of them tend to be settled out of court or dropped one way or another. And that's often done through the discovery process where the plaintiff realizes that they don't really have a good enough case. And so they end up mm -hmm. dropping it or the defendant and the defense realizes that the plaintiff does have a good case and they don't want to end up in front of a jury. So they end up settling. That makes up a, a, a large majority of the cases. What we do find, though, is um, that once we get to court, we actually, as physicians, do pretty well in court. Oftentimes, once we get there, uh, the plaintiff will end up losing. There's a very small percentage of, of, of um, plaintiffs that end up winning once we get there. And in fact, in this study, the highest year was only 2.7% of the overall cases. Um, that made it to court. Actually, um, the the plaintiff ended up winning. So, and that's out, that's out of that's out of that's out of a total of you know thirteen to fourteen percent of the cases that actually make it to court in the first place. But still, a relatively small number. And that's consistent data with you know what we've seen with adults uh, too. Is that really somewhere in that realm of ninety percent of cases never make it to court? Um, you know whether that's because it's settled, dropped, or or whatever happens prior. Uh, but, you know, that is, it is interesting that the shift has been in the dropped claim or suit rather than uh, still in progress. So it doesn't seem that they stay open uh, as long um, as they did in the past, uh, which kind of surprises. I'm, I'll be interested to see when, with the COVID data because, you know, I've always, I was, I was an ex, am an expert witness as a defense uh, that's been going on for, I don't know now, five or six years. And you know, COVID's kept pushing it back. And I, honestly, if it feel, I, I assume it'll have to be adjudicated at some point. Um, then I'll probably have to review everything all over again, just because it's been going on so long. And you you touched on the point that I was exactly going to bring up. If you didn't, is the court's dockets are very full, and they're they're still digging out of that that COVID period of time where they weren't hearing the case same caseload that they were, and so. It will be interesting when they redo this data just to see what that looks like. My guess is that that uh, claims or suits still in progress is probably going to be yeah. a lot larger. So let's look at the um, uh, look at the dollar involved. You know, as you mentioned, um, you know every kid that has a bad outcome was was going to be the uh, the next uh, you know award winning multi million billion dollar CEO slash piano player slash astronaut whatever it was going to be. Uh, so, you know, that potential, uh, it's a lot easier than you have a 55-year-old person who's lived on the couch their entire life and say, well, probably not going to get much better than that. Of course, everybody was ready to learn how to play the piano the next day. But um, talk about some of the indemnity, in, indemnity amounts, that's the word I'm going to struggle with, uh, throughout the years. Yeah, so looking at this same study, and this was done in 2018 dollars, um, when they looked at this, the, the median 
uh, payout in the cases that paid out was $127,800. And then, that, but the average payment, the mean was close to a half a million dollars, about $451,200. And then sort of on the outside edges of the extreme, uh, the 95th percentile for this was just over $1.4 million. And then further, further than that, there are those you know, five or six cases that were the really big, uh, big settlements. I think the largest one in this study was about 12.8 or 12.9 million dollars. So getting up there, uh, way up there, and depending on the state, uh, you know, whether that's something that's going to, because that's going to be outside anybody's caps, um, is whether that's something that's going to fall on the individual physician or, you know, state-based caps that may be in place. So what are some of our, our we've already mentioned some of the diagnostic uh, issues. Uh, what are the things that we're going to see? Uh, because I think that's very interesting to see that first, second, and third most common based on age group cases that will result in litigation. Yeah. So, and and this is this is kind of the point that I try and hammer home to uh, emergency physicians who are scared about taking care of pediatric patients, and and also even just talking about general emergency medicine lawsuits. Uh, in general, is that yes, you can be sued by anyone for anything at any time. But when you really nail down to, or drill down to brass tacks, whatever the whatever the saying is, really, if you look at where the majority of cases are, and you can kind of hone your efforts in on making sure that these things are on the forefront of your mind, I I, I think that that narrows narrow some of the, the big sort of liability areas. And in pediatrics, um, we see from a paper from 2018 looking at this that the top sort of five areas when we look at pediatric emergency medicine lawsuits are cardiopulmonary, and I, I think we see that in adults as well, but the other four are appendicitis, meningitis, Testicular torsion primarily, but ovarian torsion as well, and uh, and then fracture orthopedics related cases. Um, so those are the big ones, and those span really across the age range of pediatrics patients. But depending on where you fall in the age group, just matters which one is first, second, or third. I think that that part is almost less important than just realizing, hey, here's a specific subset of diagnoses that we need to be worried about and keep on our mind um, when dealing with pediatric patients. Yeah, and, 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 the, and for the importance of doing the study that is necessary, I know that we try to avoid imaging as much as possible. We try to avoid invasive procedures as much as possible. Um, we're not, you know, the, the comprehensive exam uh, may not always happen, um, as indicated with uh, pediatric populations. Uh, but you know, it is good to see that uh, the HIB is working uh, with yeah. the drop in meningitis <laughs> right. yeah. from first to third in that uh, young group. Uh, thank you, um, thank you, vaccines. As much as people now, you, you have to actually get the vaccine though for it to work. So well, encourage that. Now that everybody's smarter than nature uh, and starting to refuse all that, as my wife's a med peds physician as well, and I get the hear about it not only from our emergency department side, but uh, from uh, what she sees as well. Vaccines cause adult. Yeah, they do. That is, that's uh, one of Dr. Milne's uh, favorite t-shirts. Of course, that's t-shirt. It's been a while for a minute, but um, yeah, that, that's one he likes to wear quite a bit. So let's talk about some of these um, uh, potential big hits and take-home messages, and you can just roll through the ones that you feel like 
um, are important ones to, um, to, to focus on. Yeah, I think maybe I'll just go through them and kind of hit the highlight of really what the point is. In talking about cardiopulmonary um, disease processes in children, I think the main point is just to remember that while it is usually far less likely that a kid is having some sort of emergent cardiac event, that it's not impossible for them to have an event like that. And it's something that I think you think of all of the common things, but sometimes you just need to make sure that you keep the things um, that are not as common, at least on your list. Because if you don't think about it, you won't diagnose it. And so just thinking about things like even um, myocarditis can happen in kids with chest pain and fever and keeping that on the list and don't just assume, hey, it's just a regular viral illness and they can go home. Um, not that every kid that you're going to treat who has chest pain and a fever is going to have myocarditis, but it's something that you need to really make sure that you keep on your list. Especially with the last three years, now that, that the myocarditis and post-inflammatory syndromes became so popular. For sure. Um, and the other part of that in, in, in cardiology risk is even thinking about, you know, taking a look at the whole picture of your patient while they're there and not necessarily their one singular problem. We see cases, um, and some of them are from outpatient settings, uh, but where, for instance, the child that has a high blood pressure in your emergency department, right? It's, it's not necessarily that it may be so important for the particular visit that they're there, but if you're, if you're noticing that, vital signs are vital, right? You, you wanna key in that if a kid has a persistently high blood pressure, even if it's not necessarily related to their complaint today, that same thing you might do an adult patient is say, hey, your blood pressure is elevated, on, your child's blood pressure is elevated on this visit. Make sure that um, you follow up with your pediatrician to have this rechecked in a different setting after this illness or whatever to make sure that that's not a persistent problem. Because you, then, you, then you have incidents where then somewhere further down the line, you know, they're out on the football field and they collapse and they go back through their medical records and they see, well, here's this pattern of them having a high blood pressure, which was never addressed. Mm -hmm. And then they turn around and say, hey, this was in part the cause, this uncontrolled blood pressure was in part the cause of the, of the adverse event. So things like that. So let's talk about some of these big cases. You have, uh, the, this is the chest pain part of the talk. Um, with some of these uh, lawsuits and, and kind of pearls. I mean, I think that's the most important thing is, is the pearls that our physicians can use uh, to help keep themselves out of the courtroom. Yeah, so uh, this one particular case is a 23-year-old male, not a pediatric patient, but again, a young adult-type patient who comes in with congestion, fever, sore throat, shortness of breath, muscle aches, and pleuritic chest pain, which had been going on for two days. He was febrile. He was tachycardic. Um, and was diagnosed by the physician with bronchitis and given antibiotics and, and Vicodin, uh, and he was found dead the next day. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, the plaintiff's allegation is a failure to diagnose. Um, the patient had all of the symptoms of myocarditis, chest pain plus tachycardia equals an EKG. No EKG was ever done. The defense says there's a large overlap between myocarditis and bronchitis, uh, and pleuritic chest pain doesn't mean that you need to get an EKG, and viral myocarditis is rare. Now, this is an older case, maybe less rare now in the post-inflammatory state, but uh, the plaintiff won here, and the verdict was for just shy of $3 million, $2.9 million in this case. And, 
again, this just goes back to highlighting, you gotta keep your differential broad and your documentation is going to be important too. I, I didn't get to see the documentation on this case, but really documenting the things that you thought of, your thought process and, and why, what the scary things are, are not actually there. And you mentioned, you know, even you follow up with that one of a couple of other lawsuits, um, you know, especially with sports, because that's the thing we're seeing now. Um, of course, they're making headlines, um, you know, now with Bronny James just this last week uh, having his collapse at USC's for, at their practice. Um, but you have a couple mentioned here with sports physicals and things of that nature. And, you know, the concern now after COVID, of course, there's a group that's going to just smoke everybody about why. But, um, you know, with the known inflammatory changes associated with COVID-19 and other viral syndromes and potential for myocarditis and irritability of the heart, um, you know, mentioned some of those things because uh, even one you've got here, you know, this really vague mention of a murmur four years earlier, um, you know, those things that may not seem significant now, but be, some, be something that we need to look for. Yeah, exactly. And, and again, you may do a physical exam on a child and hear a murmur because you're listening to their heart, but they're not really there for anything that has to do with their heart. Mm -hmm. You want to make sure that you ask the parent like, hey, has anybody ever told you that your kid has a, a murmur? And even if the answer, if the answer is yes, great. Well, I'm glad you're following up with it. If the answer is no, you know, do you have a pediatrician? Do you have follow-up? Do you have the access to be able to do something about this to follow up in the outpatient? No means suggesting, you know, that you need to order an echo on them there in the emergency department and get it done, but important that if you're documenting it that you let the parent know. Um, the other interesting part of this case, too, is is there, it seems like there was recognition of the murmur and there was an, an, there was an anticipated plan to actually do an EKG, which perhaps if it were done at that time might have shown that he had uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and they could have done something about it at that time. So another thing is if you're ordering tests, make sure that there's a mechanism for following up on that, those tests or that those tests are actually getting done. Yeah, they're getting done, and also, you know, my, my feeling a lot is that areas where they are being ordered, that the person that's ordering them does not actually have the skill set to be able to interpret the study that has been performed, you know, especially with EKGs. Now, that usually means over-ordering in terms of referring a patient to the emergency department for possible heart attack, POV, secondary to concern for, for, for an EKG reading, you know, partial right bundle branch block in a young male with um, who who was just there to get their asthma medication refilled. Um, you know, so, you know, that's the key is ordering a study, but also making sure that in that study and in that setting that there is that skill set to actually interpret that test of not getting them into that place that, it can, that can actually do it uh, accurately. Um, the next one you really mentioned you dive into, and it's one of the things we always hear about is the delayed diagnosis. And what you're going to hear a theme uh, coming up over the next several is, <laughs> like we always talk about in class, never, di never diagnosing somebody with gastroenteritis or constipation, uh, unless you've ruled everything else out. Um, so, you know, talk about that continued uh, appendicitis showing up as the surgical emergency that tends to be missed. Yeah, so uh, the reality here is, I think, a couple of different things. Again, got to keep it on your differential. Got to know what study to order when and when the appropriate time is to go further. 
and then recognize what are the common things that we misdiagnose appendicitis with. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, heavy, the heavy hitters here are remembering that the ultrasound is a great test and we use it a lot in pediatric emergency medicine for the initial evaluation, but remembering that ultrasound rules in appendicitis, it doesn't re really rule out appendicitis. So in the setting of a proper exam and labs and things that are more suspicious for appendicitis, a negative ultrasound shouldn't, uh, shouldn't necessarily soothe or pacify you in that regard. And then I think that common things being common, we think that children a lot oftentimes we see constipation in the emergency department and you know sometimes we even get the KUB and we say of course the kid is mm -hmm. full of poop start on Miralax and go home but not just not just tying our diagnostic opinion to that one study but really taking in the totality of hey what's this kid's exam do they have a fever are they nauseous and vomiting do i need to get labs to kind of help me with that process that's that's the that's the big thing and, the, and to keep in mind, with the, uh, as with anything else, the younger the child, the more atypical it's going to present. Um, and as you mentioned in your discussion there, that it's often missed within that first 24 hours. But that key of close follow-up, recheck, if, it's, if that initial evaluation is negative, uh, just because something's currently negative doesn't mean it's going to stay negative. Um, and you mentioned the ultrasound, you know, just with FAST. Uh, the other one, as we mentioned up, up top in the talk, you talk about some of the ovarian and testicular torsion as, as well. And this is, this is an easy one to overlook just because of the you know, privacy of children, making sure you get the adequate exam, uh, but also that potential of the fluctuating presentation before we actually end up with something. And as you mentioned, that potential down the road, I mean, if somebody has a testicular ovarian torsion when they're 55 and not in that childbearing age versus a young person who's getting to that childbearing age at some point and will hopefully, you know, desire to have a family. So talk about some of the uh, torsion aspects of things, the pitfalls, and potentially some of the tips. Yeah, so uh, again, when we're dealing with young male pediatric patients and abdominal pain, uh, one of the things that we often see, and even as, as I'm teaching residents and they're learning, the question comes up, well, hey, what's his GU exam like? And they look at me like, oh, yeah, I didn't do that. Well, just re reminding the importance of doing a testicular exam in male patients who have abdominal pain, I think that that's, that's a big one. Um, getting an ultrasound is great, but remember that ultrasound is, again, not the perfect test. It is really good. Uh, it, it's up to 96% sensitive, but there is still that 4% miss rate. So again, if your suspicion is high enough, the importance of getting urologic consultation uh, for torsion um, is important. Um, with respect of ovarian torsion, I think, rec I think one of the big recognitions is that um, all pediatric patients, all pediatric female patients can get ovarian torsion and realizing that if your abdominal, if, you're, if your suspicion is high enough even in those younger patients and all of sort of your other abdominal disease processes are, are ruled out in the right setting, I mean, kids even as, Young as my youngest ovarian torsion, I think, was two years old. 
And so just remembering that as one of the potential differential diagnoses for belly pain is, is uh, important. And remembering the concept or idea of intermittent torsion and making sure that you're, you're giving parents good follow-up instructions for, hey, we don't see it right now, but if this is a persistent problem, don't take this as the final diagnosis. Make sure you come back and get uh, reevaluated. And that's everything in emergency medicine, that, that close follow-up that we are not, we are not the final go-no-go um, no go, uh, decision. Uh, let's get a few little things wrapped up here with um, kind of the summary of things that you, you build up. Uh, one is the communication, whether it's uh, because of, of language barriers, communication barriers, or just the fact the child is so young. Um, the idea of, uh, of bounce backs, and then the idea of consent. We'll knock those three, and then we'll hit the top five uh, for, for the second talk. Yeah, so uh, communication is key, and making sure that your parent is understanding exactly what it is that you are giving them in terms of discharge instructions. Um, part of this is also, even with the language barrier thing, too, is making sure that you have... Uh, interpretive services available to you when you're dealing with a parent and then a child that adds that extra intermediary you're not discussing it directly with the parent with with the child and if the child is old enough they may be able to speak English but the parent may not be able to speak English uh, I encourage you not to rest alone on just going through the child and the child to the parent um, making sure that the parent is also aware of what you're what you're saying to them. So interpretive services is 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 certainly a key there. Um, talking about informed consent, um, really the big thing here is just knowing what your state's view is on informed consent for minors. We think of it as just kind of like a general concept. There's this idea of the rule of sevens, whereas a seven year seven years old or younger, they're thought to not have any capacity to consent for themselves. Between the ages of seven to 14, there's a rebuttable presumption of no capacity, which means we say that they have no capacity, but if you show evidence to demonstrate that they do have capacity, they may be able to make medical decisions for themselves in certain areas. And then in this area of 14 to 21, there's this rebuttable presumption of having capacity, meaning we do think at that point that they can speak for themselves in various areas, but you may present evidence that says, you know, no, they're not mature enough to do so. But the important thing here is really knowing what your state and what your state's laws say about that. Um, bounce backs, uh, really looking at remembering, and this is really with everything, asking yourself what's the worst thing that could be going on with this child and asking yourself the question, am I certain that this child doesn't have that, and really a solid medical decision-making that you're using to reach your conclusion, especially in the area of the bounce back, just because if they've already been there for one visit and now they're coming back with the same complaint, you really gotta dig into, okay, what are we missing? And if you're electing not to do further testing for one reason or another, making sure that your medical decision-making is really clear as to 
what it is that you think you, your child has in front of you and what are the reasons why you don't think any further testing needs to be done, but also making sure you're going back into the medical record from the previous visit and really drilling what was done and what was not done to help make those decisions um, more clear for you. And again, good discharge instructions, and we'll talk about this in the second half of the talk, for precautions for uh, acute return for reevaluation. So we wrapped up talking with Dr. Curtis Mays and um, the uh, high-risk pediatric legal, uh, legal issues. We're going to do the top five here in a moment. Um, a reminder that the registration is now open for ASEP 23 in Philadelphia. Um, if, um, if you uh, join, we, we want you to join us um, because it's a great chance to hang out with colleagues, to connect, and to, uh, I think that's one of the most important things of live conferences now is the ability to spend time with colleagues. And so uh, for that, uh, if you register and use Frontline in the discount, you'll get 15, uh, excuse me, $50 off, $50 off the registration. And with four-day registration, you get virtual ASAP for free, just so if you miss something, um, then you can circle back around and get that content down the road, uh, which will allow you hopefully to spend more time with your colleagues in Philadelphia. Um, let's talk about the top five. Um, you know, this interestingly, um, just watching, just looking at the overall objectives that you have, it really is about the uh, transitions of care, whether to somebody else out of the emergency department, wherever it may be. That, tent, that seems to be our top five risk. So let's dive into those top five areas of risk exposure to emergency physicians. Yeah, so against a medical advice and, and We'll talk about this in informed consent as well, but through so much of this, I, I encourage people to think of these particular things as a process and not a form. Mm -hmm. And I think so far, so many times we can get ourselves all wrapped up in whether or not they've signed the AMA form and whether or not they've signed the informed consent form, but so much of that is not just the signature on the form. It's kind of like uh, when you rent a car, right? I don't know, you're on the road a lot. I'm sure you've rented plenty of cars and they mm -hmm. spit out this long thing from, from the machine that's your rental contract. Uh, when's the last time you read your rental contract? Never. It's just, it's just like my newest updates for my operating system for my iPhone. Same thing. Right. And, you, and, and, yet you, and yet you have to click the button that says, I accept all the under, I accept all of the terms the, of agreement, the, ter the terms of agreement, right? So really, really from the, from the concept of the form, when, when, when the court looks at this, it's like, well, yeah, okay, if we're enforcing the contract, it's because you had the opportunity to read it. But mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's less about the opportunity to read it and more about the process that you've gone through to get the patient to where they need to be in their understanding and the fact that you've documented in your medical record, right, the discussion that you had. That, in my mind, is more important than the fact that the patient has put their signature to a form. The form is helpful, um, but I think that your discussion of how that process went is, is so much more helpful to you when it comes to uh, being in a courtroom because the attorney, the argument's going to be, yes, they had the opportunity to, be, to, to read the form. That's going to be your argument. The plaintiff's argument is going to be, yeah, that form was impossible to read or understand and my patient, my, my, my client didn't understand what was on the form and nobody ever explained it to him. Um, so really your documentation is, is going to be key. Um, 
with regard to against medical advice, uh, just a reminder not to ignore your patient because they're leaving AMA or blame them for leaving AMA. They may have reasons that they're leaving that you might not understand, and that's fine. But remember that they're still your patient, and there still may be care that, although may not be the optimal care that you had wanted to give them, you might be able to provide for them. So things like if you feel like an outpatient antibiotic would still be helpful. It may not be the best treatment, but making sure that it's something that you can give them. Um, by asking them, do they have follow-up, making sure if they don't have follow-up, can you provide them with primary care or some access to care as an outpatient? So demonstrating and documenting that, hey, I understand that this patient is leaving now, but I've done everything in my power based on what they'd allow me to do to put them in a place to be successful with their treatment. That, that I think, is, is the, the, big, the big things to remember as far as, as treating your patient, and also just making sure that your patient has the capacity to be able to AMA. And you know, we get into discussions about various patients all the time. You know, does the, does the drunk patient have the capacity to AMA, that sort of stuff. But, but really documenting whatever your decision-making pattern is in the medical record that they do have capacity and that you've given them their best chance at success. Well, I feel like so many people get stuck on the idea that AMA means all or nothing. You're either going to do all the treatment or nothing. Yeah. And so even if you know something is bad, of, of saying, well, I'm not going to manage it. And maybe, you know, the STEMI, the STEMI walking out is a little bit dramatic of, of that discussion. Uh, but, you know, even, you know, to say concern for appendicitis that, that it's going out the door or a urinary tract infection, but being able to do what you can, as you mentioned there, that, that that's not the end. And, of course, that, you know, one thing I like to document also in discussions with a patient is that if you change your mind at any point, come back. And, you know, that you're always welcome here. Um, that it's not, you're, you're leaving now. Because I actually had one right before I left, and, you know, because her babysitter bailed. And so she had to go home and take care of her kids. Said, hey, we are always here. Here's what I want you to do next. But if there's any concern or you change your mind or something changes, come right back and we'll be here. Yeah. So, all right, next is informed consent. Yeah, again, so informed consent is a process, not just a form. And when we look at informed consent cases, really the two big questions that are asked when, when these cases are looked at is what would a reasonable patient want to know about the risks of the procedure before agreeing to or undergoing it? And then the second question is what risks would a reasonable provider disclose to a patient under the same or similar circumstances. And, and that's the big picture framework for, for what the court will look at. Mm -hmm. um, reminder that informed consent is a non-delegable duty, right? So it's not like you have the nurse go in and, you know, the nurse consent the patient. Yeah, the nurse can go in there with the form and have them sign the consent, but the responsibility of all of that pre-work of describing what it is that you're going, the informed part of it is actually your responsibility as the treating physician or the, the proceduralist in this case. Um, and again, it's not a form, it's a process. There are some exceptions to informed consent that have been recognized. So it's things like if it would be common knowledge um, or in emergent situations, like if you're doing emergent procedures, life-threatening 
conditions require emergent procedures, um, no informed consent there. Situations of prior knowledge, so the patient has been under, has, has had similar procedure done in the past, then it's expected that they also know, that they understand the risks and the benefits of the procedure. Um, and then therapeutic privilege in the area of informed consent is really where um, you withhold particular information from a patient because giving them that information might be more uh, detrimental to, to their care than actually providing, providing them um, with that information. That's interesting. That, I mean, that's good to know with the informed consent because you know you always see that uh, especially if you're sending somebody upstairs for a procedure, appendicitis, you know, appendectomy, whatever it is, that you know, get consent for this, and that you still have to have that discussion at some point. And I like to do that um, when I walk into the room before we get started, or if I'm introducing myself with regard to um, a non-physician provider's patient, um, and going to do something of discussing and running through it and making sure all those questions are answered before we get started. Uh, your next group of them is really is about that. Uh, patient transitioning uh, physicians or practitioners. Um, and one reason my group doesn't do handoffs, you know, with the exception of stuff that's just going to take forever, like all of a sudden, you know, an hour before the end of your shift, you order three MRIs on somebody. Um, that end of shift handoff. Let's talk about uh, some of those handoff challenges, whether it be between our colleagues or even then when we're starting to look at consultation to inpatient. Some of the big safety issues and medical legal risks come in those transitions of handoffs, right? And and so that's why you know I advocate for as as a as a best practice to make sure you have some sort of overlapping mm -hmm. shift coverage. I, I recognize it's not always possible, just depending on where you work. But I find it so much easier when, if you have that little bit of overlap, you're actually able to finish up your own patient care and not have to. Uh, undergo the risk of making those transitions. But if you do, um, you want to make sure that you limit them and that you uh, have a time where you're signing out to your partner where um, your interruptions are minimized. This should not be the time that the nurse is flinging three EKGs in front of your face to sign while you're signing off. Um, Make sure you have clear communication and that there's a clear plan. So kind of give who you're signing out to a plan of where you expect this care to go and sort of an A plan and a B plan if this happens or if that happens just to kind of give what your thought processes are. Um, important to inform the patient uh, of the change in provider. And this is more, I think, from a patient satisfaction perspective. And I think that if you keep the patient in the loop and they're more satisfied, and on the back end, if something happens, they're a lot less likely to come after you. Um, bedside sign out, and I know that this one, I have discussions with people about this all of the time, and I recognize that sometimes, depending on your work environment, it may be impossible to have a bedside sign out on every patient mm -hmm. um, that you're handing that you're handing off. Uh, but hopefully it's only a couple and you can do that. The more kind of critical care patients are the ones where I would make sure, or there's like major outstanding studies. Those are the ones that I really would go to the bedside. Um, for two reasons, this is so you both can lay eyes on the patient, but also the patient then has some understanding of the transition of care that's handed off as well. And so they're confident in, hey, okay, I know what information was shared and I, I know that I'm still in good hands and, and, and the proper information's been passed along. 
Um, and that goes along with going and seeing the patient, even if you're not able to do a bedside sign out, but at some point once you get settled and, and going, like actually go and physically see the patient. I'm sure I've, I've worked with people that, you know, take sign out from people and then they just wait until everything is done and then they go, okay, this is what the doctor said and maybe now I'll go in and see the patient. Um, sooner rather than later is, is probably better. And from a medical legal perspective, just a, remi just a reminder that, you know, you both own the patient at the end of the day and you, if something bad happens, you're both likely to be named in a lawsuit. Uh, so it's not, there's, you should take no comfort in, yes, I signed this one out to the next guy. He's going to make the disposition and I'm going to run off into the, into the wild and I'm, I'm, I'm getting away with it. You're not. Uh, it, so, so you both want to make sure that there is a, a, a clear transition and that there is a, this sometimes happens too with the overlapping shift coverage, is signaling a clear moment in the transition of care. So always identifying and making sure you know for yourself and your partner knows for themselves, but the staff know who is responsible for taking care of the patient. I think that sometimes, maybe not so much ED provider to ED provider, but sometimes this happens even when you're just signing out to the hospitalist and they're still boarding in your emergency department. Like having really clearly defined boundaries of if I need something for this patient, who am I going to? Is it you or is it the hospitalist? Is it you or is it the person who came in for you? Knowing really who is responsible in that moment in time for the patient. So let's talk about that consultation. You know, when, when we start to do that in Michigan, you actually hit on a little bit over there with, you know, boarding patients, who owns boarding patients, and that actually is part of the issue uh, is because that's not consistent, you know, in the, in the consideration across um, across hospitals and systems, you know, it's, some say that the ER physician still manages the patient while they're in the ER. In my particular facility, once they're admitted, uh, no, no matter where they are, they are the um, uh, inpatient. And also understanding that uh, many of our malpractice coverage, uh, because we are not credentialed for inpatient care, most of us, doesn't cover inpatient care. Um, and so, you know, being very careful when you're doing that management uh, of those patients, uh, especially, I still remember a conversation with one, of our, uh, with one of our legal representatives for our hospital about if we go to the floor for a procedure, whether it be intubation, whether it be um, IO, whatever, whatever it is, uh, is, click, is quick, clearly uh, identifying it as a rapid response slash emergent condition, which makes it fall under our purview. So uh, talk about some of that con consult aspects of things, and then we'll hit number five. Yeah, so um, medical legal issues with cons consultation, the big ones are a failure to consult or a recommendation from somebody else to consult and you don't end up consulting and something goes wrong. Um, delays in consultation, whether that be delay on your part or delay on getting a consultation or a response from a consultant is another big issue. Um, failure to, to appear is one, inappropriate recommendations sometimes. Um, the, the admit versus discharge one is, is another popular one. Remembering that, yes, ultimately, even though you have a recommendation from a consultant, the, the, um, it's your patient. And so the admit discharge decision is yours. And so if you still feel, despite the fact that um, your consultant may recommend one way or the other, if you still feel this really more happens with the admits, like you feel like the patient should be observed, the onus is on you to make sure that you put that patient in the appropriate spot. Um, 
we've, we've probably, or maybe, I've, I've heard often, if only I was told, if the consultant mm -hmm. says, well, that's not what I said, you know, if only I was told, and this is where your documentation comes in handy, it's like, well, make sure you document what you told them in addition to what your response is so that it's very clear from the record that, well, you were told X, Y, and Z, and this was still your recommendation. Um, those are the, the big ones from a document. I think this is all comes down to um, documentation and also uh, knowing what your hospital's policies and guidelines are based on consultation, right? So um, hospital policies can be used as both a sword and a shield. And so there's a lot of telephone consultation that happens, but sometimes in certain situations, your bylaws actually say if a consultant is consulted on XYZ patient, they mm -hmm. must actually physically see the patient. Um, and so knowing what those bylaws are and, or, or those, those policies are in advance helps you kind of navigate through even your conversations with the consultants. You know, not necessarily, you know, recommend that you quote the, the hospital rules and regulations to the consultant. That doesn't necessarily make for a very therapeutic relationship. But however, if you're getting pushback, just knowing, hey, I really need to. I really need you to see this patient in person, and here's why. And here's why I think it's a good thing for the patient. Um, so, from documenting, from from a documentation perspective, making sure that you thoroughly document the consult and what the patient's condition was and what advice that you got, um, and then documenting the specific response uh, from the consultant. If they refuse to come to the ED, that you document your attempts to find another specialist. Um, and if they're taking too long to see the patient, that you're documenting what steps that you've taken in place to try and make them realize the importance of the situation and coming to see the patient. Uh, and then whether or not really your consultation resulted in a change in your treatment plan and why. And then we're going to wrap today with the discharge instructions. You know, I feel like with a lot of the EMRs, the discharges are voluminous and typically very loosely related to the patient's uh, care and findings. Um, in fact, it's, there's some of this weird stuff that you can give discharge instructions and it's super common things that there's nothing. Doesn't make sense. Epic work better. Um, so let's talk about, you know, some of the, the challenges. This is number five, the discharge instructions and how those may increase your risk. Yeah, so the medical legal risks here, abnormal vital signs that are noted but not addressed, so making sure you're looking at those, making sure that your studies are all complete before your patient goes home, or if they're not complete, that you're documenting why they're going home without them being done. You know, there's always those things like cultures and things mm -hmm. that are not done. Um, Making sure that you're, and this is sometimes a tough one, making sure that your patient is actually comfortable with discharge. And this one, you know, oftentimes we see around like pain scales and things like that. And they say, I'm not ready to go home, I'm still in pain. But making sure that you are addressing this in your documentation and what you're doing to, to help in that regard and also the discussions that you've had in, with the patient over it. Um, 
ED nursing charting something as the patient is discharged and the physician never addresses it, and so making sure that you and the rest of your care team are on board with the discharge and that there is that open line of communication to make sure that if there is something new that your nurses know to come to you with that before they leave. Um, discharge instructions, the actual instructions themselves, we talked about uh, contracts uh, that are that are just impossible to read. Well, some of you, if you go and look at your actual form discharge instructions, I encourage you to actually read some of those things because some of those things have some really wacky instructions in there, and some of them are seven or eight patients, eight pages long. So you're not going to go and you're not going to uh, you're not going to read them. Essentially, there was one study that showed I think up to 75% of patients don't actually understand all of their discharge instructions. So really making sure that you're giving patients specific instructions that they need to make them successful at home. Um, not documenting your serial exams before discharge. Bounce backs are certainly a big one. And, and then what do you do with the patient who refuses to be discharged and going through a really just careful and thorough documentation of, um, of the conversation that you had. And I always, tell, um, I always tell people that I'm teaching to really engage yourself in this process of a, of a discharge timeout. And that really is looking at four separate things. Number one, have I addressed the chief complaint that the patient is here for? Because um, you could have done the best doctoring in the world, but if you haven't actually addressed what the patient's complaint was, they're likely to be dissatisfied. And as a result of their dissatisfaction, if something goes wrong, you're more likely to be on the hook. Um, number two, and that timeout, making sure you're reviewing all the labs and the imaging, reviewing the vital sign. Number three, reviewing the vital signs. And then number four, making sure that your discharge instructions are clear and that they're not 12 pages long so that the patient is actually going to read them. When we talk about discharge instructions, um, there are really five big things that I think that you should include in your discharge instructions. And this keeps it nice and simple. Yes, there may be condition-specific things that you need to include in there, but you want to make sure that it's clear to the patient what it is that you're actually diagnosing them with. A, some, a visit summary, so the highlights, you know, their abnormal labs or tests and imaging that you did in those results what their home care plan is, what antibiotic they should be taking, um, those sorts of things, what the further treatment is, how they can help themselves get better at home. Number four is follow-up, who they're following up with and when they should follow up and making sure that they have access to follow-up. And then finally, their return, their return precautions. Uh, if you have X, Y, or Z return, or please return to the ER, seek medical care if your symptoms worsen or don't resolve, or if you develop any new or unusual or concerning symptoms. And my kind of stock phrase that I put in um, my medical documentation is, I've reviewed test results and diagnosis with the patient, anticipatory guidance is provided, follow-up plan is reviewed, precautions for acute return for re-evaluation are reviewed, an opportunity to ask questions was provided, and the patient verbalizes understanding. And that really hits all of, I think, the major points where we're going to get dinged if, uh, if, if there's a bad outcome with respect to discharge instructions. So with that, because I have one of those that I've, that I've used as well, do you feel that this one, that concise is 
is better than a more voluminous in documentation of, of, of specific details? Do you think that this captures and, you know, when you see it based on either the plaintiff side or the defense side of, okay, I know, I know that the key stuff was done. So I do think that details are important in situations, but I think that this here really captures sort of the general bulk of your emergency department visits, because I think that so much else can be gleaned from your medical decision-making part of it, that this is really just a nice stock wrap-up from that. Mm -hmm. From, from, from that standpoint. There are obviously gonna be cases where you're gonna to wanna to go into more detail because of the specifics of the individual case, but this hits the highlights. Talking about Dr. Curtis Mays, lots of letters, uh, JDMD, all the other stuff. Uh, how can folks get in touch with you if they have uh, any questions, uh, thoughts, uh, whether email or social media? Yep, so they can email me at D-R-M-A-Y-Z, that's uh, doctor, my last name, at medicallegalmaze.com, M-E-D-I-C-A-L-L-E-G-A-L-M-A-Y-Z.com, and my uh, Twitter handle is at medicallegalmaze, uh, M-E-D-I-C-A-L-E-G-A-L-M-A-Y-Z. There's no double L between medical and legal there, so just, just the one L. So just, uh, I don't want to burst your bubble there, but uh, I'm just trying to accommodate as well. It's no longer Twitter. Uh, now I guess we just call it X, right? Is that... What, what it is now? Oh, sure, whatever the name is. That's, I know they got a uh, new that, sign. That, that, ought, that, ought to show you, that ought to show you how often I truly am on that platform. But I do get alerts to my phone. So if you send me something there, I will, uh, I'll actually uh, respond. But you're right, probably Matt, email. do you know? E it's X. Oh, there you go. It's, it's X now. I noticed my app just changed. I guess it was yesterday to X. So. Oh, it's okay. Good. So it's not like I'm like a month or two behind or no, anything no, like no, that. Just several right? hours. Just, just, just several hours. And the fact we're at a location with no motorized vehicles and, and things of that nature, I think it's okay to uh, be on that back side of things. I mean, it still works just the same. So as for me, you can contact me at rstantatasep.org, rstantatasep.org, uh, at Everyday Med on X. Um, and uh, I think I'm on, uh, I'm Ryan the Tall on Instagram. So uh, feel free to join me and uh, subscribe to the podcast. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASAP Frontline. If you're not on the front lines, you're on the sidelines. Cue the music. Bam, bam, bam. Quiet place. All yeah. alone. Da, da, da.